We're in Romans 8, and this is an amazing passage. Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 28 through 31. Now I'll read it just to set our minds. Here's what Paul says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. This is a deep and rich passage. It's one of those passages that is like the high top, the mountaintop experience. You're taking up into rich vistas to look out over God's truth and just such marvelous truths unfolded here fact, it is at this point, from Romans 8, 28, all the way through the end of chapter 11, Paul goes into a systematic defense of the sovereignty of God, that he is moving, he is directing, he is accomplishing his good purposes, and he will not be thwarted. And even what appears to be difficulties, even what appears to be thwarting his purposes, nothing is outside of his directing and his control. And when we come to a passage like this, we are challenged in many ways. One of the core commitments of our ministry when we began was we sat down and we identified what would be the marks of identifying the ministry here And one of the first commitment of our ministry was we are committed to a high view of God. We're committing to seeing God and as he has revealed himself, that a proper view of God would respond in a corresponding proper view of man, that we would have a low view of man and a high view of God. We sat down and we worked through our various uh, convictions and values. When you get up and leave, you can look up on the back wall don't look now, you'll see the people who came in later than you. But in the, afterwards, you look up on the wall, you see each of our commitments. We're committed to exalting God, committed to expositing the scriptures, committed to uh, edifying the saints, building one another up. And we do believe a, a worshipful church, spending time in God's word, ministering God's word to one another is going to then result in the fruit of evangelism and outreach and missions. It's going to reproduce. And so we committing to these things. It is a text like this that actually reveals that particular demonstration. We let God speak. Sometimes when God takes us into certain topics, they get a little uncomfortable for us because tensions rise up in our own hearts and we begin to struggle with the implications of these thoughts. What is remarkable of this passage in Romans 8:28 we know that God causes all things to work together for good is the context and setting by which Paul gives it to us he doesn't give this to us after a marvelous truth like the coming of the kingdom of heaven or the marvelous truths of the Spirit of God being poured out upon us in regeneration, or some other expression of blessing. He gives this verse 
when he has talked about personal suffering. Look back at verse 17 and 18, you see that. It says this, If we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Context is suffering. The context is difficulty. Context in which this verse of God causing all things to work together for good comes in a context where Paul says that the present sufferings of this time are not worthy to be revealed compared to the glory that is to come. This is how Paul begins to shape our perspective here when he's writing. Now, just to understand this a little bit more, this creates a problem for man. Paul, are you saying that all the difficulties that I experience, even this week or this month or this year, God's working in all of that? He's working in the death of a young child who died in the crib. He's working in the accident we had. He's working in the loss of job. When I lost my job, I lost my savings. I lost my retirement. I lost, I have no future. He's working in that. He's working in the rapes. He's working in the murders. He's working in all the mistreatment. He's working in all of that. Is that what you're saying? Are you saying that God actually is is working in all that evil that's happening all around? For some, when they come up against that question, that's just too difficult of a question to answer. No, God can't be directing that. He can't be directing that evil. He, he can't be in control of those things. Theologian by the name of John Sanders, who presents a theology known as open theism, says to the church today, we got the Bible wrong. It isn't that God is moving in all of these things. We got the Bible wrong because we fail to understand that the author, whether Paul or Matthew or any other New Testament author, they were writing under an understanding of the Greek philosophy of the time. And so they were writing, presenting God through the lens of the Greeks to speak to their day and age. So what we understand from the Bible today, we don't want to look at it through the eyes of the Greeks for that time. We need to look through the eyes of the believers and the philosophers of today to really understand what's happening. For a guy like John Sanders, we need to find the key to unlock the meaning of the Scripture And to find the key, you find it in these other outside sources. You don't just come to the Bible and look at it in its context and find what the author wrote and understand what the author would have uh, said to the original audience. You're not finding that meaning because that's not the meaning intended. The meaning that is intended is something greater than that, something different. When you find the right key, the Bible can be unlocked. Instead of finding one idea, one meaning, well, there could be many meanings because there can be many different keys. Why would someone go into this? Why would someone embrace that kind of idea? 
Well, it's because of the tensions that a text like this brings out. If we're saying God is working all things for good and he's even working in our sufferings, he's working in my marital conflict, he is working in the mistreatments I have at work, he is working through all that evil around, and it's causing me pain, it's causing me suffering, causing me difficulty, are we saying that God brings that pain and suffering into my life? An open theist like John Sanders says, no, no. That's not it. That, that's just the first century Greek philosopher view of God, and they're trying just to defend the greatness of God, but we need to look at it in a different angle. Why would they do that? A man by the name of Gregory Boyd wrote a book back in 2000 entitled this, God of the Impossible, a Biblical Introduction to the Open View of God. In this book, Gregory Boyd recounts a counseling experience that he had where he is in a room with a woman that he calls Suzanne. Suzanne came to him for counseling. She was weeping and suffering, and she recounted her life. She had gone off to college, and she committed herself into a local Christian college. She had committed herself to being a missionary. She prayed regularly for God to bless her and make her a missionary. She also prayed that God would bless her and bring a Christian husband into her life. A man of God, a man of prayer, a man of missions, a man who would love God like she loved God and that together they can commit themselves with one heart to be used by God to bless others. She had prayed diligently for this and to her delight, it seemed like God was answering her prayers. A young man came to her life. They spent time and studied together around God's word. They prayed together. She shared her desire for missions. He He shared those same desires. They sought wise counsel. They prayed. They fasted even. And they decided this was the will of God. Their pastors affirmed their marriage. And they went off and they got married. And then they went off to train. After graduating school, they went off to get trained for missions work. And while they were getting trained, he, of course, did the unthinkable. He had an affair He wouldn't ultimately leave that relationship and her marriage fell apart. All of her dreams, all of her aspirations, all of her commitments are gone, shattered. And now she's in Boyd's office. She's sitting down and saying, where is God in all of this? How come I asked him, I pleaded with him for him to direct me and what happened? Gregory Boyd responded to her with his theology and said to her, God didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know what was coming next. And he says, she was comforted by this news because she didn't have to abandon all confidence in her ability to hear God and didn't have to accept that somehow God intended this ordeal, quote unquote, for her own good. Yeah, I know that's what the Bible says, but God didn't direct in that way, he says. God wasn't moving there. He didn't have an exhaustive knowledge of what was to come. He didn't know. He, He was just as shocked as you are, Suzanne. He didn't know what was going to happen. And that was part of the risk that God had to take. God had to take that risk. 
to give you freedom. Boyd or John Sanders describing this view of open theism says there are basically two categories that providence can be directed in or sovereignty can be directed in. It could be put in the category of no risk or risk. Put in the category of no risk, God is in control of every detail. Everything's within his sovereign control. He is orchestrating all things. There's no risk to God because he controls every event. But then there's the risk category. And in this category, God sovereignly decides to give up all control and to let man go. And he's, might, what might happen is things that God did not intend to happen. Things turn out in ways that God didn't desire for it to turn out. You see, the attempt is to say that God isn't responsible for this activity, for whatever bad thing that happened. God is not directing these things. God is just as shocked as you and I are when it comes into it, when they happen. And for some, the, the sense is, oh, there must be a peace. Because I can still trust God. I can still pray to him. But it brings up a significant question. If our suffering and our pain and our difficulties call the character of God into question, then what is moving behind everything? Is it a kind of fatalism? Is it an outside force greater than God at work? I mean, the question for us at hand is this. Is God good when we suffer? Is he good when we're sick? Is he still good when we are diagnosed with cancer? Is God still good when we lose our jobs and we lose our savings and our retirement? Is God still good when we are mistreated, when we are insulted, when we are even physically harmed? Is God still good in all of those moments? The answer of the open theist, yes, because God's not around in it. He's nowhere to be involved in it, so he must still be good. The question we have to ask is, but what does God say about it? What is God's testimony? And the testimony is what we have recorded by the Apostle Paul under the influence and moving of the Holy Spirit wrote the very word of God to us and God says plainly, here is his message. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God those who are called according to his purposes. You see, what we understand and what God regularly teaches throughout his word is that there is not one stray molecule in all the universe outside of his sovereign directing. There's not one careless words that is outside of God's directing. There's not one activity, one event without God directing and moving. God is accomplishing his good purposes and he is bringing about exactly what is needed for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. What we learn in Scripture is that we don't have to let God off the hook. 
God himself explains what he is accomplishing and what he is doing, and he actually rises us out of that mire and gives us a perspective, a right perspective to view ourselves, to view our suffering, and to understand the character of our God. Now first, I want to demonstrate for you this thought revealed here in Romans 8.28 is not some kind of outside idea forced upon the text by Greek philosophers. This is a consistent message throughout God's Word. Even before those philosophers were on the scene, God was speaking in this way. Let me demonstrate this to you first by taking you to Genesis. So turn over to Genesis chapter 37. Let me take you through an account of one individual who suffered greatly for a long time, the life of Joseph. Genesis chapter 37, we pick up on this young man, Joseph. Genesis 37, look at verses 2 through 4, says this. These are the records of the generations of Jacob, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pastoring the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives, and Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because we, he was the son of his old age. He made him a very colored tunic. And his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him, and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. This is the introduction into the life of Joseph. We find him as a young man, the age of 17. We find them as the youngest so far uh, of the sons. And he is mistreated by his older brothers. In fact, his older brothers hate him. And understandably so. He was a tattletale, as you saw there at the end of verse 2. They didn't do so well. He came home as the righteous little brother to tell on them. He wasn't exactly earning good favor with them. This is Joseph's life. Hated by his brothers, loved dearly by his father, and he's a young man. Now, again, Joseph didn't exactly add to his uh, position very well as he prodded his brothers, and particularly in a vision or a dream that God had given him. Look at verses 9 through 11. Now, he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him, and his father kept the sayings in his mind. So that he received this dream from God, this dream in which he had this exalted position in which even he believed his father and mother and brothers would come and bow before him. And 
Instead of keeping it to himself as a wise man, he decided to boast of this dream to his brothers. Again, in the midst of all this, just unaware of the implications of how they might take of that, here is a kind of clueless young youth. Of course, naturally, the fallout that would come upon Joseph, jump down to verse 18, when they saw him from a distance and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into the pits. And we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. I mean, right here, the scriptures are indicating to us, Joseph is in this place of great hostility in his own family. His own brothers want him dead. Not only do they want him dead, they already have the lie to cover it up. He was going to be, he was eaten by a bear. A wild boar came out, beast devoured him. They came, took his life. Nothing we can do, Dad. We, we couldn't catch up. Verse 21, at least one of the brothers had some sense. Reuben heard this and rescued him out of their hands and said, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, verse 22, shed no blood, throw him into the pit that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him, and he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to the, his father. The point is, Reuben was going to deliver him. You know, get their tensions off of Joseph for a moment, deliver him, let him be free. So it came about, verse 23, came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic the very colored tunic that was on him. And they took him and they threw him into the pit. And now the pit was empty without any water in it. He was thrown into the pit, waited there for a period of time. It was probably a while. And as it occurred that somewhere, Reuben had disappeared off the scene and another opportunity arose. You see the opportunity in verses 25 through 28 then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes and looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and they lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Joseph here he was, a young man. We saw him at the age of 17, could have been even that same year or shortly after. Hated by his brothers, mistreated by them, thrown into a pit. And now, on, not on an act of his own will, he is now thrown into slavery by his own family. Jump over to Genesis chapter 40. We pick up uh, again, seeing Joseph. This young man, Joseph now, having been sold into slavery, was purchased. 
and he was purchased by a man named Potiphar, who was a captain of the bodyguard. And this man selected Joseph and put Joseph in charge. And in the midst of this, Joseph was given great responsibility. Joseph was now put over Potiphar's house in control of everything that Potiphar had. In fact, Joseph uh, was found great favor. Actually, look back at chapter 39, sorry, 39, verses 4 and 5. It says this, So Joseph found favor in his sight, and because of his personal servant, or became his personal servant, that's Potiphar's, and he made him, Potiphar made Joseph, overseer over his house. And all that he owned, he put in Joseph's charge. And it came about that from, that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So there's Joseph, he was thrown into slavery, he was purchased, he's now raising up in honor in, in Potiphar's house. He's in this position of great honor, managing all of Potiphar, Potiphar's resources, blessed greatly. Maybe this bad event was turning out for good. Maybe this bad event that was sold to slavery is going to actually turn out to be a good thing. But you remember the story? Potiphar's wife comes, tries to seduce Joseph. Joseph flees her advances, and then he is accused of actually trying to harm her. And he is then ushered off and thrown into prison because he has taken advantage of what he should not have. And now he is thrown back into prison. What started as this great role, now he's back at rock bottom. He's in prison. But even in prison... Joseph rises up, and Joseph gets opportunities. Even in prison, it says there in Genesis 40 and verse 4, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. Joseph even raised up and was in charge of all the other prisoners. It says there he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. Joseph here is now imprisoned. And in this state for some period of time where he is now in charge of the other prisoners and he's caring for their needs. Why is that important? Because there was one day Pharaoh was angry with his cupbearer and his baker and he had them thrown into prison. Joseph comes as they are in prison and one day they come and they are grieved because they had a dream. Both of them had a different dream. Chapter 41 describes this of Genesis. Joseph interprets the dreams of both men. One was going to die after three days and the other was going to be restored to their position of honor after three days. After Joseph gives these dreams to these individuals, he says to them in that moment, remember me. When you go back to Pharaoh and your life is restored and you are re doing the works you previously did and he's speaking to the cupbearer, once you're giving to the cup, you know, Pharaoh his cup and once your job's restored, remember me, tell Pharaoh what I did so you can deliver me from this event. What happens? He's forgotten about and he's left there for another period of time. We don't know how long, but it probably was a while because... 
Eventually, Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has a dream that shocks him, and he has this dream that they need an interpreter. And then Joseph is remembered. And Joseph comes out, and he remembers, he knows the dream, and he gives the interpretation of the dream that they're going to have seven blessed years and then seven uh, years of want. And for them, they were to prepare in the seven years of plenty, they were to prepare for those seven lean years to come. And Pharaoh likes that interpretation. We pick up in Genesis 41 and verse 46. Now notice this. Now Joseph was, notice the age, 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered all the food those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city the food of its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it for it was beyond measure. Look at this. It was 30 when he was put in charge, seven more years later. So from the time we started to see Joseph, he was 17 years old. He is now 37 years old for 20 years. 20 years of Joseph's life, mistreated by his brothers, thrown into slavery, even in opportunities when he's starting to get somewhere, it is, the rug is pulled out from underneath his feet, thrown into prison. He's in prison, he rises up to authority, and then he's forgotten. Finally, Joseph, after 20 years of suffering and difficulties in this prominent place in which God has placed him. You, of course, remember the story. Sometime later, between the age of, you know, from 37 to 45, we're in this window of time, probably a year or so into this, the famine is spread throughout the whole land, and you remember what happens. Joseph's brothers come They need grain, they need resources. They come to Egypt because they hear in Egypt there is resources. So they come for resources. And ultimately, Joseph ends up revealing himself. And he brings his whole family back to Egypt, to Egypt to bless them. And we'll pick up the story at the end of the story. Turn over to chapter 50. The end of the story is Joseph's family returns or comes to Egypt and Joseph is able to bless them and, and establish his family in this new land and, re, and, and deliver them. His father eventually dies. Jacob dies, Israel dies. And then what happens? The brothers themselves recognize, uh-oh, trouble's coming. We're about to reap what we sowed. Notice verse 15 of Genesis chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full all the wrong which we did to him? Their conscience is now burdened. They recognize, "Uh uh-oh, this is it. We are about to get in trouble here. So they send a messenger to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and your sin and their sin, for they did you wrong. 
And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Now at this point, here's the key for Joseph. They're thinking they certainly, he, Joseph, can't certainly ignore the words of our father. So we will plead that dad asks you, Joseph, to forgive us. Joseph, of course, went away, wept as they spoke to them. Verse 18, then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Now notice, verse 19, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Now what comes next is the most significant words of the whole understanding of Joseph's perspective on his life. But again, I want to set up for you the dilemma. 20 years plus of suffering and mistreatment. Suffering from those who are your very own family. And whenever there is, seems to be a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of rescue, a glimmer of opportunity where finally I'm going to get out of this, as I said, the rug is pulled out from underneath Joseph's feet and he's back at square one. I mean, think about the feelings of frustration. I'm getting somewhere only to have it taken away. And the people who should be loving me mistreat me. And the people who should be caring for me don't care for me. And the one I love the most who I want to see, I can't see because my brother's jealousy. Where is God in all of this? What is he doing? Has he forgotten me? Did he forget me in Potiphar's house? Did he forget about me in prison? Did he forget about me when I was thrown in the pit? Where is God in all of this? The open theist response is, he is just as shocked as you are. But that's not the theology of Joseph. For notice the theology of Joseph in verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Yes, you did evil, and there's no doubt about it. Everything you did was evil. You meant it for evil. You were driven by evil. You were unrighteous in all your deeds, but God meant this for good. God was moving and directing there's no changing of the evil and trying to manipulate it and say the evil was something different. No, let's acknowledge it exactly for what it was. That was evil. It was jealousy in their heart. It was murderous rage. It was unrighteous. They were driven by that. And yet God was working to bring about a good, to present them, as he says, to preserve many people alive. Well before the Greek philosophers. Well before the wisdom of man changed, God was making it known that he is God. That he is directing and orchestrating and accomplishing his good purposes. Mind you, this event, this famine had destroyed Jacob and his sons. God would have been a liar to Abraham. God wouldn't have fulfilled his promises. And the covenants to the fathers wouldn't have been true. And that God's purposes would have been thwarted. God was preserving his covenant promises that he had made long ago to Abraham, which is through Jacob, through his sons. 
God was preserving and protecting his people to accomplish ultimately which would come the line of the Messiah, then the Messiah, and our own redemption. We say like this, if God didn't protect Joseph and lead Joseph through these difficulties, none of us are here today because there's no Messiah. There is no Christ. There is no line of David. There is nothing because God's line would have been thwarted. Now all that, turn over to, back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, then we come, we'll just briefly fly over the top of this. This is just kind of warm up to create the appetite, so next week we'll get into it more. But in this marvelous verse, Romans eight twenty eight, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. Nothing is outside of God's directing. He's moving in all things. And even in the context of suffering and difficulty, Paul takes our perspective and rises our perspective up so that we have a proper perspective of even our personal griefs and sufferings. The rich theology that comes out of this marvelous text should comfort us through the midst of our suffering and difficulty. One would ask, why all this suffering? Why all this difficulty? I mean, you could ask Joseph, could say, why 20 years of suffering and difficulty? And I love what the words of Thomas Watson's are about this. He says this, a sickness will teach much more than any sermon. So true. So many times the suffering we experience, the difficulties we experience in this world are teaching us so much more because we're learning so much more. Notice just quickly five things that Paul brings out in this marvelous verse. First is this, he starts with we know. Wait a minute, it's the word we know. He's appealing to kind of a, a, a doctrine, a, a source of knowledge that is inherently we know within us. He uses this word many times in the New Testament, but particularly in the book of Romans, a lot of different forms of this exact same word, oida, to know. Here, we know in the plural. It's used it multiple times in Romans already. It's over in chapter 2 and verse 2 is the first time he used it. He says this in Romans 2, 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We know God's righteous judgments. Chapter 3 in verse 19, the same word is used again. Now we know whatever the law says. We know the word of God to be true. We know the law to be truthful. Chapter 7 in verse 14, we see the same word used again. For we know the law is spiritual. He's appealing to this collective knowledge that the people of God have, that we know as we have spent time in the truth of God's word, we know these things. We know of God's righteous judgment. We know that the law is good. We know that the law is spiritual. Over here in chapter 8 and verse 22, the word is used again. For we know that the whole creation groans. We know we're not alone in our suffering. Even the creation is suffering. Verse 26 says, We do not, or notice in verse 26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how we ought to pray. It's what we are lacking in understanding. This word we know then in chapter 28 appeals to this kind of collective knowledge that is true for God's people who know the Scriptures. 
It's not some outside philosophical source trying to give us a key to interpret the text. It's knowledge that God has given us. Secondly, what do we know? We know God is at work. We know we're not alone. We know that God is at work. Is what he says. We know that God causes all things to work together. He is at work. He is directing. I, mean, I love this because we inherently, everyone inherently knows that there is a God. You get the natural man praying. He prays to God. I think it's funny. Even the Arminian is a Calvinist when he prays. God, save this person. God, open their eyes. We know God's working. We know God's directing. We know God is accomplishing things. And we are appealing, God, do your work. We inherently know this. As the scriptures teach, Proverbs 16, 9, the mind of man knows, or the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We plan, we purpose, the Lord is directing. Or Jeremiah 10, 23, I know, O Lord, that a man's way is not in himself, nor is it in man who walks to direct his steps. Yeah, I'm stepping, I'm moving forward, but you're directing, you're orchestrating. What else do we know? For the third aspect here, we know God's working and we know that it is towards our good or for good. That's what he says in the text. He's working all things together for good. There is a good work here. It's not to say that, again, that that evil is good and it's a good thing that that evil happened. I'm not saying that. We're not saying go out and do evil because God's going to make it good. So live it up in evil. That's not the case. That's not what we're saying. We're saying this, that for God's working and God's directing, there isn't any activity that occurs that doesn't have God's good purpose behind it. Some good reason. Something that God is accomplishing. I mean, just think about Joseph's life again with all the difficulties, all the suffering, all that he faced in life, the mistreatment from family, the mistreatment in Potiphar's house, the mistreatment in the prison, all of that. What good could possibly have come out of that? Well, he says, well, it delivered the people of God, so they had the fulfillment of God's covenant promises, yes. But even personally, from a corporate level, great, that's good for God and great for his character, but what about for Joseph? Well, he still had a growing faith, so that was good for him. He didn't abandon the faith. And he drew near to God, even in his suffering, he saw God's good hand bless him and protect him and grow him. And he grew in wisdom, and he grew in understanding, and he certainly became wise in the midst of his sufferings. I mean, I thought it was a pretty shrewd act to say to the cupbearer, remember me after I've given you this vision. So he's definitely working behind the scenes. He's growing in a kind of wisdom in the midst of his own personal suffering. He grew. It was good. Next week, we'll try to expand more on that idea of good and what it means for God working all things together for good. But let me point out two more things. It is good for those who love God. It's not an indiscriminate good. It is a purposeful good. Here is for those who love God. God is working and orchestrating and moving in everything. 
that there is no experience, nothing that is happening that's outside of God's sovereign control and directing, and he's directing it for those who love God. To love God, to love his ways, to love righteousness, to love holiness, to love godliness, to love the truth. All of those are signs of those who love God, those who fear God. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So there's the ones who love God's commandments and seeks to keep them. This one who loves God, God is directing and orchestrating everything. And then the last little detail I want to point your attention to. It is for those who are called according to his purpose. Those whom he has called out, those he has selected, and we'll look at this more next week, but it is to say that those whom he sets his love upon, he's called them specifically to himself. These are the ones that he is directing and moving and accomplishing all good things. So here's the point for us. There is no event, nothing outside of God's good directing in all things. No wayward molecule in the universe outside of God's sovereign directing. No circumstance or situation that God isn't behind directing for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. What is the good? As I said, we'll answer that next week. But what I would say is this, whatever is happening, even as bizarre and as wild as it may appear, nothing is outside of God's directing. And I thought it was funny this week because I was reading articles and I saw two different events that happened in the news. And these are literally events in the news. One was a, was a plane crash where the plane crashed, but everyone survived, which is amazing. You know, the plane goes down, but everyone survives and they come out of it, God's kindness. And then tragedy on another event where a man was shot when his dog stepped on a rifle and it shot him and killed him. I say, never in a million years, if you had a guess, like, how are you going to die? My dog's going to shoot me. (laughs) Never would have guessed it. I mean, I can't even say it without just laughing, thinking about the providence of God, that that would be how one went to glory. And I sure hope the guy's in heaven because I would love to laugh with him about it. But you know, neither detail, neither event without, is outside of the sovereign hand of God directing every meticulous detail from the loaded gun to how his position to where he was at to the hyper dog to every step he knew and directed. You say, well, what good? I don't know yet. But I'm going to find out. I'm going to ask, because if this is one who, is, who loved God and was called according to his purpose, something is being accomplished. God is moving and directing in every way and accomplishing his good purposes. And we are going to come back next week and see all right, what is this good purpose. Till then, we can understand this. We can come to the Bible And we can understand what the Bible says, for God is intended to communicate to us. And some of the mysteries and some of the truths that God reveals to us are so grand, so great, that it takes us from our mundane lives into the heights of worship to God 
and we see the riches of God's glory on display as we're going to continue to see as we work our way through this text. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, certainly give us understanding. Help us to understand your ways and your purposes. Help us to see how you are moving and directing. For indeed, we are awed and amazed that you can take our personal difficulties and trials and sufferings and griefs and direct them in such a way to bring about ultimate good. And even like Joseph, he did not have to lose heart, be confident in your good purposes, that you would be accomplishing and even using him to preserve your covenant promises to Abraham and ultimately to us. Or if you had lost, if Joseph had lost heart and grown weary in doing good and lost faith, then our own salvation would have been lost. But you protected him and guided him and strengthened him and used his faithfulness to fulfill and bring about your promises. Father, when we are in the midst of our personal sufferings and we're tempted to feel alone and isolated and we don't see how these things are useful and good, may we fix our eyes on you, recognizing that you're in control and you are directing and you are accomplishing your good purposes in the midst of it, that there'll be many more that you may bless as a result of our growing faith. And so may we not be consumed and myopic and self-focused, but may we recognize the rich privilege we have of being a part of your work and entrust ourselves to you by faith and see the riches of your grace on display. For indeed, we are weak. We're feeble in our understanding, and we, we don't know what is being accomplished. But we rejoice when we come to your word and you remind us in your truth that you are God, that you are in control, that you are accomplishing all good things. And in the midst of that, our hearts are comforted and we have peace because we are naturally fearful and naturally have gone astray. But it is your word that comforts us and brings us back and strengthens our faith. And so we pray that the result will be as we spend our time in your word and increasing in a robust faith because we are accomplished, we are confident in what you're accomplishing. It's in your name we pray, amen.